It's Friday, June 12th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. You've heard of the rallying cry to defund the police. But while many local officials and law enforcement experts disagree with the idea of dismantling police departments, they do say, however, that some of the duties police perform could be better handled by others. The idea of taking funds away from police budgets and redirecting that money into resources that support homeless housing, mental health, addiction, and employment services is gaining steam. Kim Hart, City's reporter at Axios, joins us for where it might make sense to cut police budgets. Next, when the country shut down to help prevent the spread of coronavirus, it was also thrust into the learning experiment of mass remote learning. As the end of the school year approaches, the results are in. Didn't work. The problems quickly stacked up in school districts ill-equipped to make such drastic changes. Some students lacked access to computers or internet, teachers had no experience with remote learning, and some parents were unavailable to help. Lee Hawkins, education reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how the remote learning experiment went and what's on deck for next year. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I call it transformational change. Transformational change. Um, it, is, it, is, it is looking at how we can evolve as a, as a profession. Joining us now is Kim Hart, Cities reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Kim. Thanks for having me. We've been having a lot of conversations about what to do when it comes to changing policing and, and getting police reforms done in the country. We've been hearing the calls of protesters to defund the police. There's a lot of conversation going around surrounding this. There's already a few cities that have pledged to take money out of their police department's budget and reallocate it other places. But Kim, you wrote an article about where it might make sense to make some of those cuts to police budgets and where to kind of start reinvesting that money. Kim, tell us a little bit about that. First, I think it's important to understand that a lot of people have different definitions of what the quote-unquote defund the police movement is calling for. I think there are a lot of uh, local officials and law enforcement officials who are pretty alarmed by the call to completely defund or dismantle a police department entirely. What the defund movement is really calling for is taking some money, as you mentioned, from a police department's budget, which uh, some activists feel are very bloated and overly large for the cities that they that they serve, and reallocating that to some of the social services like education, housing, mental health, addiction treatment, that can actually help reduce crime and get to the root of some of the, the problem rather than just policing the symptoms in sometimes an overly aggressive way. So, There's alarm about how far the defunding goes, whether it is a complete defunding or a, you know, finding some targeted areas where it may not make sense for law enforcement to be responsible for responding to certain calls and maybe partnering or handing off some of those duties to professionals who might be better equipped to do it. Going back to your point about how much money these police budgets have in Los Angeles, Mayor Eric Garcetti said he's going to take $150 $150 million from the LAPD budget to boost funding for other programs. Okay, that's $150 million, but the total police budget is $1.8 billion. So it, it is a small amount comparatively there. But what can you do with that money? As you were mentioning, 
a lot of police have to respond to. And a lot of times it's issues with mental health, things like that. So some of that money can be reallocated to programs for alcohol and drug addiction and a social worker could be more effective than making an arrest or something like that. Uh, tell us about uh, the mental health aspect of this. There are a lot of community programs, for example, that can, instead of um, you know someone who is a drug addict or who has a real problem with alcoholism, is wandering the streets causing problems. Uh, you know the the typical reaction to that is someone calls nine one one, a police officer comes out, and most likely that person is arrested or taken to jail for the night until they sober up or until someone can come and pick them up. And uh, what experts were telling me is that it may be more appropriate for the first responder in that case to be someone who is trained in handling people who are struggling with mental health or struggling with addiction issues and who have the resources and the specific tools to be able to help that person get to a safe place, get into treatment, call a family member, do some of the things that police officers just don't have the ability or the access to do. But there is a question of well, if people are so used to calling 911 in these instances, how does the police department and these social services uh, then interact? How, where's the handoff going? How do we make this change so that the, the social service workers and social workers have the ability to be part of that intervention or maybe be the sole interveners, um, even though society at large is not used to that kind of system? Yeah, it might have this kind of weird adverse effect in a way where some of these social workers and EM teams might have to be put under a police department purview. That way they can allocate, you know, and, and say, hey, OK, well, this is a different kind of call. Let's get you going. So it, it might be this weird mishmash of things, too. And these are the things that need to be worked out, obviously. Schools, school districts right. also have a lot of uh, contracts with police departments. Minneapolis and Portland, Oregon have terminated their relationships with local police departments but right there, you know, when whenever there's a school shooting, a lot of times people say, hey, well, if a police officer is there, an armed police officer, uh, maybe they can be there to prevent something like that. Right. And that is uh, an argument that several people shot down with me saying that hasn't proven to be effective at preventing school shootings and having an armed, uniformed police officer may be counterproductive in dealing with children who are in need or in distress or crisis, having problems at home, acting out, getting into fights, bringing weapons to school. There may be a better position for a counselor, adding, using money to add some counselors to the staff of schools, which are, the, you know, the, the ranks of counselors have been dramatically reduced due to budget cuts. Adding more teachers, adding people who are specialists uh, with different grades, different levels of different age groups um, and different types of populations to try to work with them in different ways and maybe not have interactions that could have adverse effects on a 14-year-old black student in a school who maybe has a difficult run-in with a police, uh, with a school resource officer, and that could color how they view law enforcement going forward or how that police officer, school resource officer, treats students like that going forward as well. So I think it, it, it's the relationship issue and the argument there is maybe we need to put those responsibilities in the hands of people who are trained to work with children in an academic setting. A lot of the effort is to keep police where they're needed most for serious crimes, homicides, sexual assaults, things like that. And uh, maybe you can create these other programs to help in these other areas. But one of the realities is, is that, you know, cities across the country are facing big budget deficits, especially right now 
as the coronavirus pandemic shut down economies throughout the country. And that's going to be the tough thing is finding the money for these other programs. Obviously, that's why people are saying, let's take money from police departments. But this is the tricky part of it. Absolutely. And I think that budget cuts to these other social services and community programs are part of the reason that police have picked up so many of these responsibilities in the first place over the years. A lot of cities and mayors that I have talked to specifically have said, look, we're facing millions of dollars, sometimes tens, even uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of deficit over the next couple of years. And public spending on public safety, including police departments and firefighters, that's on the table, too. So there's not a lot of flexibility in moving money around. Of course, everything can be reallocated. There's a lot of power with city councils, with mayors who want to sit down and reimagine what uh, what the priorities are, but the pie to split up is going to be dramatically smaller over the next couple of years. Kim Hart, city's reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All of a sudden we had this coronavirus that came from overseas. And next thing you know, as the numbers started to skyrocket, the leadership at many of the schools in the major cities and even in rural areas across this country were kind of reluctant to close schools because they didn't know how to implement it in the future. Joining us now is Lee Hawkins, education reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Lee. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about what happened to our schools this past year because of the coronavirus pandemic. Everybody was forced into this grand experiment, so to speak, of mass remote learning. I think it was more than 50 million students from kindergarten all the way to 12th grade had to use technology and the teachers and the parents. It became this whole thing. And, you know, after doing this for a few months, it's kind of the end of the school year now. People are starting to think ahead what's going to happen for this next school year. It seems like everybody roundly agrees that it was a pretty big failure due to a whole host of different reasons. Lee, tell us a little bit about it. There's some debate on whether or not it was a failure. In our story, we talk about the fact that many of the teachers and administrators that we interviewed said that it was a failure, and there were many, many problems with the adoption of it. And so the things that didn't work were a direct result of the way it started. It was very sudden. It was abrupt. It was unexpected. All of a sudden, we had this coronavirus that came from overseas. And next thing you know, as the numbers started to skyrocket, the leadership at many of the schools in the major cities and even in rural areas across this country were reluctant to close schools because they didn't know how to implement it in the future, how to implement remote learning over that time off. And so the fact that it was so abrupt and that there wasn't a lot of notice meant that there wasn't a lot of training. And the fact that there wasn't a lot of training and the fact that children didn't have the devices that they needed, all of the children, because of economic disparities, that only compounded the problem. We'll get into a lot of different specifics. The first thing I want to bring up, though, I think there's a name for it, even uh, the COVID slide. And this is kind of the learning gap for the kids during this last few months. This whole time, you know, maybe they're not learning at the same level anymore. I think there was a few statistics about it, too, that kids who are going to return to school in the fall with roughly 70% of the learning gains in reading relative to a typical school year. And for math, it's only 50%. So that's kind of most concerning to me, too, is kids advancing to the next grade, harder things that they're supposed to be learning. 
and they might not be prepared for it. There were many students that struggled, particularly special needs students and students with ADHD, students with autism, but even more than that, students who are more visual learners who need to connect with their teachers in order to be able to comprehend the information. I'm not surprised at the difference between the performance of students in reading versus math, because once again, math is a very hands-on endeavor, something that you need to actually maybe have follow-up questions on. So that was one of the things that contributed to this COVID slide. And it's going to require that schools, particularly like the New York public school system, do some remedial training this summer. The New York public school system is going to be putting over 150,000 kids in summer school. And a lot of those students were put there because they need to catch up. And so the concern now is that if schools reopen in the fall, that there will need to be even more review work to bring those kids up to speed. And if they don't do the review work, the question is, will there be some learning loss that is long-term that we start to see in standardized tests and tests to get to the next grade? I wanted to also talk about grading because This is one of the things that you keep reading into a little more and you're kind of like, oh my gosh, you're not going to be able to hold these kids accountable, I guess, for learning. And it's tough. I know that there's huge problems with access, but we're talking about them not learning the right materials. And if they advance to the next grade, they're not going to be prepared. What a lot of school districts were even doing was say, don't issue grades that would be harmful. Don't issue F grades. I think some school districts even banned the F grades. There was a lot of things they're called hold harmless. So don't give grades that would negatively affect students, but ones that are neutral or help advance them. Those are permitted. Tell us a little bit about grading. There was a wide range of grading processes that happened across schools. I talked to people at private schools who gave an option of pass-fail, credit, no credit, things like that. Because, listen, if you're spending $50,000 a year to go to an elite school in New York or something like that, poor grades are things that can haunt you when it's time to apply for college. And I think teachers and administrators understood that students should not be penalized if they did not perform well in the remote learning environment. And it's not always because they don't get the remote learning. There can be family dynamics that are going on in a home. We see domestic violence shoots up in periods like this. These are all things that Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, was very concerned about. And so the whole idea is if you penalize kids for adverse childhood experiences, that interfere with their ability to do well on remote learning, it's not fair to see their grades suffer because everybody needs to be on an equal plane in order to really grade everybody fairly. Taking attendance was such a big hurdle for a lot of teachers and for the students themselves. They had a few statistics already showing that some of the kids weren't even showing up as soon as they were kind of getting wind that maybe they weren't giving the fail grades out, things like that. I think in Los Angeles for the LA Unified School District, They estimated that on any given day in a week span, 32% of high school students didn't even log in to do the remote learning. A lot of our educational values come from our parents, but they also come from the financial and economic situation that we're in. There are many children who are babysitting siblings 
There are many children who have to share a device with four other siblings, and there are many children who may have other responsibilities or things to worry about, and their parents may not be aggressive about telling them to log into school. If a 10-year-old has to use his or her own motivation to log into school, a lot of the times they may not do that unless they're reminded to do so. Many parents aren't necessarily adept to teaching maybe life lessons, yes, but maybe not the book stuff. And they were kind of thrust into this position of having to be teacher and, as you mentioned, having to reinforce everything. Hey, make sure you log in, make sure you attend the class, all this stuff. So the parents were put in a really hard place with this. There's a reason that teachers go to college and even get paid more if they receive a master's degree because it's not just about a parent's ability to understand and comprehend the material. A parent to step into a teacher's role effectively would need to understand the communication and interpersonal connection techniques that teachers use on a day-to-day basis to pull the best out of their students. And in a class of 30 students, a lot of times there can be clusters of students who have different ways of learning. And it's the job of the teacher to read those students. You can have a relationship with your child and not really know how to connect to them in a classroom. And there were a lot of parents that were put under a tremendous amount of pressure because they had more than one child many times and having to jump from child to child to help each of them finish their work. And with the younger students, it's much more challenging and it's actually much more critical because if you're dealing with an elementary student, that's a student who is learning fundamental skills related to math and reading. And if they miss these lessons at this stage, they could have severe problems in the future. And we were essentially relying on the parents to be teaching these skills. It would be very, very hard probably for anybody who doesn't have formal training as a teacher to figure out how to teach a third grader math and to answer questions in a way that that young person can comprehend so it can connect on paper and in the mind. That's very difficult, and it's a special gift that teachers have, which is the reason why teachers are teachers. The school year is ending. Everybody's already looking ahead to, you know, as you mentioned earlier, summer school even, and then what's beyond that, going back to school in the fall. What's going to be the plan? I'm seeing a lot of things about a hybrid system, which would basically be still some remote learning and then cycling kids in and out of live school instruction as well. So it's very likely that there will be some kind of blended learning or hybrid learning system that combines remote learning with face-to-face instruction. In some cases, you're hearing that kids could be going to school on Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, and then switch to remote learning and then allow the other group of kids to go on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then they switch to remote learning. There are all kinds of different possible models and forms that this could take, but it's still being hashed out across cities, across the country. And let's also remember that in some areas, it's going to be more challenging than others. The New York public school system has 1.1 million students. In some rural areas, it may not be as daunting because they may be able to pull off the social distancing requirements just because of the fact that they don't have as many students. So all of this is still being decided, and we're going to see if school starts as we know it in the fall. There's a high, high possibility that remote learning will be a permanent part of some aspect of our future. Lee Hawkins, education reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Everybody stay safe. 
that's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive. <laughs>